Welcome again, especially if you're visiting as a guest um, this morning. Uh, we are, during the season of Lent, our sermon series was on the book of Job. And I'm going to continue with the book of Job. This is the last sermon in that series on the book of Job. It's a little different, perhaps, than your typical Easter sermon, uh, but hopefully um, you will get a sense of the resurrection faith and what that means. Um, our scripture this morning comes from chapter 19 of the book of Job, and I'm just going to read, this is verses 14 through 29. The Job, this is Job speaking. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him and with my mouth, my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. And when I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my, flat, my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that an iron pen with lead and they were engraved in a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart fails within me. If you say how, how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for the wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. The word of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you would meet us this morning, on this Easter morning, um, and teach us about resurrection faith and, and that great hope that we have in Jesus. And may you teach us through the life of Job. Um, that many of us uh, suffer and are afflicted, help us to know how resurrection faith and hope is, is for us here and now. So be with us this morning. Meet us wherever we find ourselves, Lord, whether it's in a place of faith and joy or a place of doubt and skepticism or sorrow. Uh, meet us by your spirit and your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. So does Job express in this passage hope in the resurrection and the life ever after? You would expect this would make sense as a, as a man who's been suffering, that he would go in this direction. But it's, it's a little more complicated than that. It's not exactly the case here that Job is talking about resurrection. Maybe a little, maybe, maybe not at all. It's complicated, right? And it's, uh, Job, as a book, is very complicated, book. Um, it's a book about suffering, and suffering complicates our lives, right? That's kind of the understatement of all understatements, right? It causes us to question uh, ourselves, 
It causes us to question our grip on reality. It causes us to question God. Um, it stirs up, real suffering stirs us up within us all kinds of confusion, internal confusion and conflicted desires. And Job expresses all these things. Job feels like everybody has turned against him. God has turned against him. His friends have turned against him. His wife has turned against him. Even little children despise him. Can you imagine being despised by little children? Right? That's how bad Job's situation is. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that an iron pen with lead. They were engraved in the rock forever. Job's Job's pain and suffering is so monumental that he wants a record of it. He doesn't want it ever to be forgotten because it's the only thing he has left is his suffering. He doesn't want it to be forgotten. And when you read this chapter, especially, but it's really the whole book, you get the sense of a man who is just, he's, he's completely exhausted and exasperated by his own pain by his own suffering. He's at the end of his mental, physical, emotional rope. I mean, he says, my heart faints within me. I cannot go on like this. But sandwiched in between all of these cries of desperation is this, these couple sentences. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. What does Job mean? <laughs> what does Job mean here? Who is this Redeemer? And what exactly does Job hope this Redeemer will do for him in the midst of his suffering? It's really the question I want to answer this morning, and I want to answer it rather strictly in the context of the book of Job first. Um, I want us to consider how Easter hope addresses the problem of suffering, the problem of evil in this world. Job is an upright man, just a reminder of the theme of the book. Job is an upright man. He is innocent in all his way with complete integrity. And God permits Job to endure unimaginable suffering and loss in his life. And the question really the book asks is, or in the beginning that is asked is, will Job stay faithful? Will he maintain his integrity or will he turn on God and curse God? And the book raises all kinds of questions. Why does God do this? Why does God allow Job to suffer? What is, what is the point of this? And really, we don't get any good answers. No answers that you can turn into a theory about why evil exists within the world. And when we read the book of Job looking for answers for the existence of evil and why God permits it, you're going to be uh, very, very disappointed because it does not give us any good answers. It refuses to systematize evil. But what it does teach us, it teaches us that evil is, is an alien presence in creation, and that evil and suffering are things that can't easily, and really they can't be systematized into our lives and integrated in a nice, neat way. Even if we had the answers of why we suffer, even if we had reasons, having those reasons and answers doesn't actually help you. It doesn't reverse the pain or reverse the loss. Now, most, um, most commentators on Job do not believe that the text here where he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that I'll see God face to face, um, 
that that is a, a reference to resurrection or the afterlife. And I think they're correct. And the reason is this, is because in the Old Testament, there really isn't a, a, a clearly defined understanding of the resurrection, of a bodily resurrection, or of an afterlife. Don't let this shock you. It's okay. We believe in this is true, but revelation in the Bible is progressive. It's, there you get hints. You get shadows of it. But there's no clear teaching on resurrection. There's illusions. Now, it's easy now when we look back and through the lens of Jesus' resurrection and to see that that is pointing towards resurrection. I think that's true about this text. But I want us to take the long route there first because I think it helps us understand something very important about the resurrection and what it means for us today. In the Old Testament, the emphasis wasn't on so much what happens after life, in the afterlife with God in heaven, but actually the now, the present, living righteously within the present. And so what hap- what's most important with when death draws near in the Old Testament is what kind of death you experience. Is it a good death? Job also expresses a very pessimistic view of what happens after death. Like when you die, you die. That's it. He says in chapter 14, again, he's very in a dark place, but he expresses a general sentiment throughout that you see in the Old Testament. Man who is born of a woman is few, and his days are full of trouble, and he comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease, though its root grows old in the earth, and a stump dies in the soil. Yet the scent of water, it will bud, will come back to life. But a man, a human being, dies and is laid low, and a man breathes his last, and where is he? And the answer is, he's nowhere. <laughs> he's done. As waters fail from the lake, and the river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down, and he rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be aroused out of his sleep. There's a sense of finality about death in the Old Testament. However, it's complicated. There are certain kinds of death untimely deaths, deaths the one that Job is staring down, that take you to a place called Sheol. You've probably, we had that word in Psalm 16, you've encountered it. Most of the time we just call it the grave. We think of it as just that's the place where dead people go. And Sheol is synonymous with the grave, but there's more going on in Sheol. It is the place of death. It's kind of a murky place. It's not exactly the opposite of living, or it is the opposite of living, but it's a place of like ongoing death. It's not unlike um, the kind of understanding of, of the afterworld in Greek mythology where you know souls go and they're just, they become sort of comatose, mostly unconscious. They're sort of like in the grave, not really doing anything. This is not hell. Again, the idea of hell doesn't develop until later in the Jewish tradition. But what's important about Sheol is this, is that it's a place where people go that especially have untimely and tragic deaths. And there's a sense in which the psalmist and Job, they appeal to Sheol. There's a way that Sheol as the place of death kind of comes at you in the midst of suffering. It's like coming out of the grave to grab you. Psalm 88 actually gives a very uh, fulsome depiction of Sheol. The, uh, The psalmist says that my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead. 
like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from the land from your hand. And you have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions of the dark deep, and your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. See, what's important about Sheol is that it's a place where those people who are, in a sense, look like they've been cut off by God in the life of the land of the living. Sheol is the place where they go. And this is Job's sense of Sheol, that he actually says that, um, talks about Sheol as a place that would be actually welcome retreat from his present suffering. He calls it his mother and his sister. His hopelessness in suffering makes him imagine that Sheol is actually better than living. Sheol is your worst life now, but just sort of extended on forever in the grave. Again, it's not quite hell, but it's not a whole lot better than hell. It's just the place of the dead. Uh, in f- fantasy and, and TV and, and um, literature, often you have these people that are raised from the dead, but they're still dead, right? And, and their distinguishing mark is like maybe they were shot or they are stabbed and they still have like a knife in them. And that's the last memory, right? Like the last memory of their life and who they are is actually the last worst thing that happened to them. And that's the idea of Sheol. It's like my life ends in tragedy, and I will ever be marked by tragedy in the grave. Now, the question is, well, what's the opposite of Sheol in the Old Testament, right? Where do the righteous people go? What's interesting is that the Bible does not speak about the righteous going to Sheol in the Old Testament. So what's the alternative to Sheol if there's not a heaven or an Eden? The alternative to Sheol is a long life full of blessing, full of progeny, of children, to carry on your name and sort of your memory, and a peaceful death. That's the opposite of Sheol. Um, it's not Eden, it's not heaven, but it's, it's a life enveloped by blessing that God gives, and it's, it's, a, it's a life lived well that has a peaceful death that bears witness to this, this is a righteous person, this is a righteous man, a righteous woman. And um, when you look in the Old Testament at figures like Abraham, this is what you see. Of Abraham, it said, these are the days of the years of Abraham, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last breath and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Uh, Moses, a very similar kind of description. Moses was 120 years old when he died and his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated, right? <laughs> that the image here is that he had great eyesight, he could still see fine, he still had plenty of energy, but then he just ceased, right? That's, again, not how we think about death. Job himself, at the end of the book, when God restores him, gets a similar kind of death. And this is a sign that, of, of and against Job's vindication. It says, uh, Job, after he lived, and after this, after he's restored, that is, he lived another 140 years, and saw his sons, he had new sons and daughters, to the fourth generation, and Job died an old man full of days. So, so that's the vision of, in a sense, blessedness, right, in the Old Testament. And we, you know, again, I'm not, I, I, the payoff would be big, I hope. Just hang with me here. Uh, there are, I'm not saying there's not resurrection in the Old Testament, <laughs> or, or that there's not pointing towards the afterlife and heaven and things like that. But the focus of Old Testament spirituality is very this-worldly. It's very much focused on 
the people of Israel as God's covenant people in relationship, in history. Moses, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, after repeating the law for the second time, he gives the people, as they're about to go into the promised land, um, a choice of life and death. And he really kind of captures the way that the ancient Israelites thought about life. Life and death. I see, I set before you today life and good and death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if in your heart you turn away and you will not hear and are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land you are going. The contradiction at the very heart of the book of Job is this. Job was living according to the commands of the Lord. He was loving the Lord his God. He was walking and keeping the statutes of the Lord. But instead of life and blessing in the land, what he is experiencing are the consequences of those who live disobediently. Death, suffering. And yet he was a righteous man, right? Job is a righteous man. He did no wrong to deserve the suffering he endured. And he is suffering as if he is a wicked man. He's on the fast track to Sheol, right? And this completes, contradicts everything he knows about God, how God relates to the righteous, and how God runs the universe. And his friends simply cannot make sense of his suffering. There's, there, there must be some sin that Job has committed to bring upon this suffering as a form of punishment from God. And yet again, what we know is that Job has done nothing wrong to deserve his suffering. And here we're getting to the point, right? The thing that Job fears most, it's not death. He does not fear death, and he welcomes death. The thing he fears most is the death of a wicked man. He doesn't want to die as a wicked man. He doesn't want to die as one abandoned by God to Sheol. Now, this puts us in a position to understand Job's perspective of what he is yearning for when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. What does he want most of all? Vindication. Vindication. That's what Job wants more than anything else is vindication. Earlier, he, again, he anticipates in different ways and speaks of uh, advocates and witnesses He says, O earth, cover not my blood and let not my cry find no resting place. In other words, may justice be done. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and he testifies to me on high. In another place, Job imagines that there's some mediator as he, again, between him and God. For God is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come together to trial. There is no arbiter between us that he may lay his hand on both of us, right? That's the image of a mediator, as somebody that is in between. Job wants a vindicator. (laughs) He needs somebody to plead his case, to be vindicated. What does that mean? It it means that you, you have been cleared of any blame or any suspicion or any wrongdoing. It is to be made right and whole again. That's what it means to be vindicated. 
Job does not want to die as one condemned as a wicked man. And so he, he, he longs for a redeemer, somebody to intervene. And this word redeemer is, a, again, a, a strange word, or it's, it's not a common word in terms of replying to God. And Job is not imagining this redeemer as God because he sees God as his enemy. God is the one who is attacking him, the reason why he's at where he is. But a redeemer is, is a, a word that could be, uh, mean a, like a legal advocate or somebody was, who was an avenger. So if you were killed, your, your, your redeemer would avenge your death or somebody would rescue you out of financial ruin. And that's what Job imagines and longs for is somebody like this to come in and it's in response to this is that after my skin has been destroyed and my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and behold and not the eyes of another. His hope, again, is that someday he can stand face to face with God with integrity and be recognized as being the righteous and the innocent man that he knows that he is to be vindicated. Now, it's easy for us to look back now and see how Jesus as the Redeemer and the Mediator is the one that Job longed for. And Paul tells us this in 1 Timothy 2. He says, describes Jesus, there's one God and there's one Mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, it's very unlikely, again, I think that Job was, in a sense, fully anticipating the resurrection, bodily resurrection in his own context but Jesus' resurrection from the dead is how God would fulfill his desire for vindication. This reveals to us, I think, the deeper truth and meaning of resurrection. Resurrection means vindication. Resurrection means vindication. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is his vindication as the Son of God. Like Job, but even more so, Jesus was a righteous man. He was innocent of all wrongdoing. And yet, as the prophet Isaiah foretells in Isaiah 53, he made his grave with the wicked. Although he had no, done no violence and no deceit was in his mouth. See, to be hung on a cross is to be like hung on a tree. And the Old Testament says, cursed is the one who is hung on a tree. In other words, God's judgment is on you if you hung on a tree. The only, the only people who die this way are criminals and the wicked and those abandoned by God. There's no other possible interpretation for what happens to Jesus on the cross than that he has been condemned. He has done something wrong, and he deserves his suffering. This is why, again, it's like the friends of Job. This is why the disciples were no help to Jesus in his suffering, just like Job's friends were no help to him. They, they had no category. They had no other way to interpret what was happening to them is that this man did something wrong. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was his vindication as the Son of God. It is his vindication as the Holy One, his justification. And his resurrection is proof positive that he is who he said he was. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, but he was raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. That word justification is the same synonym for vindication. It is to be made right, to be declared innocent, to be declared righteous. I think that Job helps us in many ways as we come to the resurrection. We typically think about resurrection as simply God's answer to the problem of death. 
And it is, and I don't in any way want to take that away from you this morning. But there is a bigger problem that is downstream from the problem of death, and it is the problem of sin. It's the problem of sin. The reason that evil and chaos and, and suffering are in this world is because of sin. We are what's problematic about this world. The evil and the injustice that has spread throughout creation like a cancer has its metastasizing source right here in the human heart. And so when Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the sting of death is sin, this is what he's getting at. That what makes death so terrible is sin. <laughs> it makes the experience of death as like the punishment of God, the separation from his presence. All the things that Job felt, God's condemnation. But Jesus' resurrection is the vind his vindication before God. And it means our vindication as well. Our justification. See, there's a difference between us and Job and Jesus, right? So, so Job is more a type of Jesus than he is a type of us. And it is true that we suffer in life for no uh, reason, specific reasons for things we've done wrong. That is true. And we can take comfort in that. But we cannot come, <laughs> the way that Job does, into the presence of God with a sense that we've got clean hands, that we've not done anything wrong, that we're without sin, and that we can state our case confidently before the presence of the Lord. And here's where Jesus' resurrection as vindication cuts in both directions. Not only does it give us comfort that God will make right that which is wrong in creation, but that God will make right even those who are wrong, even though those who do not deserve to be in the presence of God. Jesus' resurrection fundamentally changes the meaning of our death and our experience of suffering. It means that death is not condemnation. It means that our suffering is not punishment. It means that when we die at the end of our lives, it does not mean that we just cease to exist or we go into punishment and separation from God. It means that the final word of our life, at the end of our life, is not whatever great sin we've committed or whatever tragic death we die or whatever injustice or loss has marked and shaped our lives. That is not the last defining thing about who we are. It is God's yes. It is God's vindication of us that declares us righteous and blessed and eternally welcome into his presence. That's what resurrection means. Vindication. Now, Easter is a time of great celebration. It's a time of great joy, and for good reason. It's similar to how a courtroom, um, after a verdict is read, and it is a just verdict, everybody breaks out and cheers, right? That's what happened at the resurrection, right? After a long cosmic trial, <laughs> the judge, the jury, the witnesses, the plaintiffs, they gather back together into the sort of cosmic courtroom, and the, and the verdict is read, and the verdict is this, Jesus, righteous, Jesus, innocent, Jesus, the Holy One of God, and what that means is that no longer can death or shield or hell or sin or the powers hold him down. He must be released. 
He has to be released. And when he is released, he's resurrected. That's what resurrection is. It's to be released. Released from the power of death and sin and suffering and injustice. And what resurrection means is that once for all, justice has been done. Justice has prevailed in the cosmos. God's ways have been vindicated. Brothers and sisters, um, the joy of Easter is is that the Lord invites us into this new creation justice, that the resurrection is a declaration of our righteousness, which is an act of God's new creation in our life. This is the deepest meaning of Easter, that Jesus is vindicated, and that by Easter faith in him, resurrection faith in him, so are we. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's try that again. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. God, we give you thanks for this Easter message of vindication um, that we, even though we truly lack righteousness, um, in Jesus we have it because you have declared us righteous and that you promised to overcome any unrighteousness. And Lord, thank you for the resurrection in the way that it gives us comfort as we suffer, as we experience injustice in this world, to know, God, that the way you uh, deal with evil is through new creation. And so I do pray for the power of new creation to enter all of our lives in the places where, where sin or suffering or injustice has marked us, and that you would work uh, resurrection life in those places. We give you thanks. We thank you for this day in the name of Jesus. Amen.